to the church in Sardis. Chapter 3, verse 1. Sardis is modern-day Sart. It stood about 33 miles southeast of Thyatira on a major highway that led all the way to Susa in Mesopotamia. Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire, um, just north of the Tigris and Euphrates River and the Zagras Mountains that go right above that. It was famous for its military history, jewelry, dye, and textiles. The manufacturing and dyeing of woolen goods were the leading occupation. Due to its situation on a steep hill, many people thought that the city was impregnable. However, Cyrus II, who was the Persian king who set up the Persian Empire back in 536 BC, he came and captured it in around 549 BC by following a secret path up a cliff. And Antiochus Antiochus IV, a Greek ruler, later would invade the city in the same way around 218. Sardis was very well known for its um, production of textiles and dye. So this would be like the, 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 the life of merchants and corporations and CEOs. There's a lot of financial corporate power here. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds that you have a reputation, that you are alive, but in reality you are dead. Wake up and then, wake up then and strengthen what remains that was about to die, because I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Therefore remember what you have received and heard, and obey it, and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will never know at what hour I will come against you. But you have a few individuals in Sardis who have not stained their clothes, and they will walk with me dressed in white because they are worthy. The one who conquers will be dressed like them in white clothing, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will declare his name before my Father and before his angels. The one who has ear had better hear, and the Spirit says to the churches. The title that Christ uses this church is the one who holds the seven spirits, which remember the angels. And the seven stars, sorry, the seven spirits is the Holy Spirit, and the seven stars is the angels of God that go out into the world. This communicated that Jesus Christ was the only true authority over their lives and the church, and thus they answered to him. And remember, the seven spirits is the power of God, how it permeates and completely throughout the entire world and is in control. And the seven stars are the angels, the ultimate rulers over the entire world that are not God and not Jesus. And he holds them in their stars because no matter how, sorry, he holds them in his hand because no matter how powerful and wowing the angels are to the point that even humans are tempted to bow down and worship them, and many do, they're still just in the palm of Christ's hands. And the idea that he's communicating here is I am the ultimate authority. I am the ultimate authority. Your authority comes nowhere. Sardis received the strongest condemnation. This is the most harsh condemnation as a whole from Jesus. The only positive thing he said was that there were few that had not defiled themselves. But unlike the other churches that he condemns, but says there's still a few have not, he goes and he elaborates on them. Here, he just says, I know there are some or not. He does not elaborate. He does not go into talking about how they've done this and this and this positively. He just mentions that there are some or not which means those who are not are either so few that you can barely even reference them, or they're not is so minimal that there's not much to commend in them. 
not much to commend in them, to praise. I know your deeds, your reputation, that you're alive, but in reality you're dead. They just look like they're alive. Now, he doesn't commend them for their deeds. He doesn't even say, but you're working hard and you've done lots of good things, but I have this against you. You've lost your first love. Or you're working hard and you've got a lot of great deeds and all this kind of stuff, but you allow false teachings. He just basically says, I know your deeds. You look like you're alive, but you're not. This is even harsher than anything else that he said of Ephesus. They they were at least alive to a certain sense. They just had lost their passion and their intimate connection with God. But they weren't completely dead and gone. But here, they're pretty much like dying. Wake up then. Awake, O sleeper. Get off your rear end. Remains that is about to die because I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. There's a very, a very, very dim ember of life and good, true good deeds that are left in you. Fan it. Fan it and awaken it. We go back to what you received. Go back to the beginning. This is the same advice that he gives to Ephesus. Find whatever it was that first sparked you, that first got you falling to God, and, and, and go back to that and repent. Obey and repent. Obey and repent. Right? Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be found in Jesus than to trust and obey. We, therefore, remember, we receive an order. Now, remember, we talked about this. Deuteronomy is a major argument. Deuteronomy is the only book that gives you the entire heart of God. You hear the heart of God in the, throughout that book more than any other book of the Bible. And Deuteronomy makes the point that remembrance is the key to faithfulness. Remembrance is the key to faithfulness. So go back and remember what you heard, obey it, and repent. If you are dying inside, and there's, if you feel like there's very left left in you, then go back to when you first heard the gospel. Go back to the first things that you did and be, just begin to obey it. Sometimes there is something to just grit your teeth and obey in the beginning. C.S. Lewis said this, fake it until you make it, so to speak. That's not the best advice, but sometimes if that's all you have, it's better than nothing. Because a lot of times when you begin to do those things, sometimes you're like, oh, yeah. Like right now, my daughter sometimes... It's hard to teach little kids how to authentically pray <laughs> and to, to authentically repent. Uh, they, 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 don't, they don't fully comprehend repentance and how grievous their sins really are. And so one of the things we've said lately is like, okay, every night from now on, we're just going to repent of something. We're going to ask God to change or help us grow in some area of our life. And I don't know if you really care about that or want that in that moment, or really, but it can't hurt to just at least speak it out loud. Because the Holy Spirit can do something with that, but it can't do anything with nothing. And so at least, and not that my daughters are cold and hard, it's just they're young, and they're, they're immature, and they haven't fully grasped it. And so I said, from now on, we're going to thank God for something, and we're going to pray for someone, and we're, we're, going to re, we're going to pray for God to change some horrible, sinful thing in us. And we're just going to pray until the Holy Spirit begins to make it authentic where he begins to teach you the gravity of it. And then, of course, I will still be there teaching them and helping them. That's not like you just do all the work, Holy Spirit. But I can't. The Holy Spirit can do without me. I can't do it without him. There is something to just just start doing it. It's not what God wants. It's not the best way to have a relationship. But when there's very little life left in you, it's at least something that he can fan and he can use. 
But if you're not doing it, then you can't even use that. You can't even fan that. Your deeds are not complete. Repent. For if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night. And you will never know what, what hour I will come against you. Some people connect this to Jesus' parable in Matthew 24, verses 43 through 44, of I will come like a thief in the night, and you will never know when I'm coming. That's not what he's talking about here. First, that is specifically about the second coming of Christ, that he makes it very clear in the greater context of Matthew 24 that he is talking about his coming back to the planet Earth to set up his throne, and you don't know when he's going to come. He's going to be like a thief coming when you least expect it. That's not what he's talking here. He's talking about that he's coming on Sardis to judge them like a thief in the night. Not a global second coming, but rather on Sardis itself. The reason is, first, the final advent of Jesus cannot be said to be dependent upon the vigilant obedience of Sardis. Jesus is not saying, Sardis, repent, for I'm coming like a thief in the night. Because if you don't repent, then I'm not coming. The entire world... The experience of the second coming of Christ is not dependent on Sardis' vigilant obedience. That does not make sense in any kind of way. Second, similar commands to repent in the face of alternative comings of Jesus are issued in communities of Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. There's other places where God says, repent or I'm going to come. The idea is not, I'm coming like a thief in the night, period, because this is the prophecies of God in the second coming. The idea is, repent or I will come like a thief to judge you. Because remember, the second coming is judgment. It's the iron scepter to bash the skulls. And so what God is saying, there is a thief in the night that I'm coming for the entire world. But now he's specifically saying that I'm also going to break into time, space, and matter in your particular church unless you repent in order to judge you. This is an individual repentance of an individual church that he's using the analogy of thief like the night. And the idea is they should know what that means because Christ said, I'm coming globally like a thief in the night, where now Jesus is saying, I'm coming for you, not the whole world, not like it's out there one day in the future, I may not be around anymore, but if you don't repent, I'm coming in your lifetime with some kind of a judgment, not globally, but for you. The same idea is given to Laodicea, where repentance is dependent upon whether Christ comes or not into their life. So, of course, you want Christ to come into your life in an indwelling sense, but this is the kind of coming of Christ you don't want. You don't want this one. This is the whole idea, too, that John's like, yay, the second coming of Christ. And God's like, eat this book. And it's sweet, yay, the second coming of Christ. But then it becomes bitter in the stomach because when you realize what the second coming of Christ really is, There's a whole lot of bad stuff coming, too. A whole lot of bad stuff. But you have a few individuals in Sardis who have not stained their clothes, and they will walk with me dressed in white because they are worthy. White is associated with victory. Yes, it has a purity idea, but it's most specifically associated with victory in a Second Testament sense. And the First Testament is often associated with just pure purity of righteous behavior. But the Roman world is going to layer a new idea and concept of, and that's victory. When a king or a general conquered, they would dress themselves in all white clothing, and they would ride in on a white horse to symbolize their victory. 
it was awesome to dress the Olympic warriors who were victorious would be dressed all in white. And remember, John's preaching to his culture. In a culture where Moses and Samuel are writing, yes, it could be strictly a purity image. But in a culture of Paul and John, it's a purity, but most specifically a victory, victory image. What God is saying is victory is found in obedience to Christ. Victory is found in obedience to Christ and devotion to Christ and allegiance to Christ and no other things. So those are victorious. I will give you the white dress. You will not be stained. Remember, they work with dyes. So they know what staining is like. They know how their hands are just constantly stained all the time or somebody in their family's hands are constantly stained all the time and they get that. And as much as you want your clothes to be uniformly stained with this purple dye, you don't want your skin to be uniformly stained. And most of the time it's not uniformly stained, it's blotched and that's not attractive. And so that's the idea of staining, not coloring, not dyeing. Stain, God says, you've been stained and this doesn't look good. It's not desirable. And yet I will purify you, and I will make you victorious with white robes. One who conquers will be dressed like them in white clothing. Notice the word conquer, dressed in white. That communicates the idea of victory. I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will declare his name before my father and before his angels. This goes to the book of life that we're going to talk about in chapter 20, Revelation. In the book of life, there are two books. The book of the law and the book of life of Jesus, or the Lamb. If your name is not found in the book of the Lamb, then you're head of the law. And we'll talk about that in way more detail, but you're going to be judged according to the works of the law. And if you can't meet up the requirements of the law, which you can't, then you're judged. And so what God is saying is that I will never erase your name from the book of life, the one that's, those are in Christ. Remember? There's nothing in heaven or hell or above or anywhere that can separate from the love of God. You've been sealed. And so he says, I will never... And now the word erase here is actually the Greek word blotted. And it's the idea of ink or dye dripping where it shouldn't be and blotting out important words on a document. And there's no getting it back. You don't erase ink in the ancient world. You blot it out accidentally or intentionally. That's their version of white out. God is saying, I will not drop. You want to be stained? Then I will drop one final stain on your name in the book of life. But for those who conquer, you will not be blotted out. Now, this isn't teaching a loss of salvation. This is a metaphor. And metaphors and analogies stand on three legs. Blotted out also refers to the idea of dying. But the idea is that you will not ever be erased or blotted out from the book of life. But the book of life would declare his name. But not only that, now this is phenomenal. I will stand in the streets and I will declare your name because I will be proud to have you associate with me. Those who reject the world, the world rejects them and destroys your reputation and tries to mock you and destroy you. But Christ says, if you follow me, no matter what the world does to you, I will stand in the streets and I will proudly declare your name as one who belongs to me. Everybody will know that you belong to me and how proud I am of you. As in Acts chapter 2, 7, well done, good and faithful servant, as Stephen is dying for not denying the faith. 